Section two of Tiger by the Tail by Paul William Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Harvey. Let us have a clear understanding, said the barbarian chief. You are a prisoner on a warship already light years from Lanthwar, well into the imperial marches and bound for Scotha itself. You have no chance of rescue and mercy depends entirely on your own conduct. Adjust it accordingly. May I ask you why you picked me up? Flandry's tone was mild. You are of noble blood and a high-ranking officer in the Imperial Intelligence Service. You may be worth something as a hostage, but primarily we want information. But I, I know... The reply was disgusted. You're very typical of your miserable kind. I've studied the Empire and its decadence long enough to know that. You're just another worthless, younger son, given a high-paying sinecure, so you can wear a fancy uniform and play soldier. You don't amount to anything. Flandry let an angry flush go up his cheek. Look here. It's perfectly obvious, said the barbarian. You come to Leanthwar to track down certain dangerous conspirators. So you register yourself in the biggest hotel in Catuanus as Captain Dominic Flandry of the Imperial Intelligence Service. You strut around in your expensive uniform, dropping dark hints about your leads and your activities. And these consist of drinking and gambling and wenching the whole night and sleeping the whole day. A cold humor gleamed in the blue eyes. Unless it is your intention that the Empire's enemies shall laugh themselves to death at the spectacle. If that's so, began Flandry thinly, then why, you will know something. You can't help picking up a lot of miscellaneous information in your circles, no matter how hard you try not to. Certainly, you know specific things about the organization and activities of your own core, which we would find useful information. We'll squeeze all you know out of you. Then there will be other services you can perform. People within the Empire you can contact. Documents you can translate for us. Perhaps various liaisons you can make. Eventually, you may even earn your freedom. The barbarian lifted one big fist. And in case you wish to hold anything back, remember that the torturers Ascoda know their trade. You needn't make melodramatic threats, said Flandry sullenly. The fist shot out, and Flandry fell to the floor with darkness whirling and roaring through his head. He crawled to hands and knees, blood dripping from his face, and vaguely he heard the voice, From here on, little man, you are to address me as befits a slave speaking to a crown prince of Skoda. The terrestrial staggered to his feet. For a moment his fists clenched. The prince smiled grimly and knocked him down again. Looking up, Flandry saw brawny hands resting on blaster butts. Not a chance, not a chance. Besides, the prince was hardly a sadist. Such brutality 
was the normal order among the barbarians. And come to think of it, slaves within the empire could be treated similarly. And there was the problem of staying alive. Yes, sir, he mumbled. The prince turned on his heel and walked away. They gave him back his clothes, though someone had stripped the gold braid and the medals away. Flandry looked at the soiled, ripped garments and sighed, tailor-made. He surveyed himself in the mirror as he washed and shaved. The face that looked back was wide across the cheekbones, straight-nosed and square-jawed, with carefully waved reddish-brown hair and a mustache trimmed with equal attention. Probably too handsome, he reflected, wiping the blood from under his nose. But he'd been young when he had the plasio-cosmetician work on him. Maybe when he got out of this mess, he should have the face made over to a slightly more rugged pattern to fit his years. He was in his thirties now, after all, getting to be a big boy, Dominic. The fundamental bone structure of head and face was his own, however, and so were the eyes, large and bright, with a hint of obliquity, the iris of that curious gray, which can seem any color, blue or green or black or gold. And the trim, medium-tall body was genuine, too. He hated exercises, but went through a dutiful daily ritual, since he needed sinews and coordination for his work. And, too, a man in condition was something to look at among the usually flabby nobles of Terra. He found his figure no end of help in making his home leaves pleasant. Well, can't stand here admiring yourself all day, old fellow. He slipped blouse, pants, and jacket over his silkite undergarments, pulled on the sheening boots, tilted his officer's cap at an angle of well-gauged rakishness, and walked out to meet his new owners. The Scathani weren't such bad fellows, he soon learned. They were big, brawling, lusty barbarians, out for adventure and loot and fame as warriors. They had courage and loyalty and a wild streak of sentiment that he liked. But they could also fly into deadly rages. They were casually cruel to anyone that stood in their way, and Flandry acquired a not-too-high respect for their brains. It would have helped if they'd washed often or two. This warship was one of a dozen, which Sertic, the crown prince, had taken out on a plundering cruise. They'd sacked a good many towns, even some on nominally imperial planets, and on the way back had sent down a man in a lifeboat to contact Sertic's agents on Lienthwar which was notoriously the listening post of this sector of the empire. In learning that there was something going on, which a special agent from Terra had been investigating, Sertic had ordered him picked up, and that was that. Now they were homeward bound, their holds stuffed with loot and their heads stuffed with plans for further inroads. It might not have meant much, but, well... Sertic and his father, Penda, didn't seem to be just ordinary barbarian chiefs, nor Scathania an ordinary barbarian nation. 
Could it be that somewhere out there, among the many stars, someone had finally organized a might that could break the empire? Could the long night really be at hand? Flandry shoved the thought aside. He had too much to do right now. Even his own job at Leanthoir, important as it was, could and would be handled by someone else. Though not, he thought a little sadly, with the Flandry touch, and his own immediate worry was here and now. He had to find out the extent of power and ambition of the Scathani. He had to learn their plans and get the information to Terra, and somehow spike them even a little. After that, there might be time to save his own hide. Surtick had him brought to the captain's cabin. The place was typical barbarian chief's den, with the heads of wild beasts on the walls and their hides on the floor. Old shields and swords hung up in places of honor, a magnificent golden vase stolen from some planet of artists shining in a corner. But there were incongruous modern touches, a microprint reader and many book rolls from the Empire, astrographic tables and computer, a photograph. The prince sat in a massive carbon chair, a silkite robe flung carelessly over his broad shoulders. He nodded with a certain affability. Your first task will be to learn Scathanian, he said without preliminary. As yet, almost none of our people, even nobles, speak Anglic, and there are many who will want to talk to you. Yes, sir, said Flandry. It was what he would most have desired. You had better also start organizing all you know so you can present it coherently, said the prince. And I, who have lived in the empire, will be able to check enough of your statements to tell whether you are likely speaking the truth. He smiled mirthlessly. If there is reason to suspect you are lying, you will be put to the torture, and one of our sensitives will then get at the truth. So they had sensitives too, telepaths who could tell whether Bean was lying when Payne had sufficiently disorganized his mind were as bad as the Empire's hypnoprobes. I'll tell the truth, sir, he said. I suppose so. If you cooperate, you'll find us not an ungrateful people. There will be more wealth than was ever dreamed of when we go into the Empire. There will also be considerable power for such humans as are our liaison with their race. Sir, began Flandry, in a tone of weak self-righteousness, I couldn't think of... Oh, yes, you could, said Surtick glumly. I know you humans. I traveled incognito throughout your whole empire. I was on Terra itself. I posed as one of you, or when convenient, as just another of the subject races. I know the empire, its utter decadence, its self-seeking politicians and pleasure-loving mobs, corruption and intrigue everywhere you go, collapse of morals and duty sense, decline of art into craft and science into stagnancy. You were a great race once, you humans. You were the first to aspire to the stars, and we owe you something for that, I suppose but you're not the race you once were. The viewpoint was biased, but 
Enough truth lay in it to make Flandry wince. Surtick went on, his voice rising. There is a new power growing out beyond your borders. Young peoples with the strength and courage and hopefulness of youth. And they'll sweep the rotten fragments of the empire before them and build something new and better. Only, thought Flandry, only first comes the long night, darkness and death, and the end of civilization, the howling peoples and the ruins of our temples, and a myriad petty tyrants holding their dreary courts in the shards of the empire, to say nothing of the decline of good music and good cuisine, taste in clothes and taste in women, and conversation as a fine art. We've one thing you've lost, said Surtick, and I think ultimately that will be the deciding factor. Honestly, Flandry, the Scythani, are a race of honest warriors. No doubt, sir, said Flandry. Oh, we have our evil characters, but they are few, and the custom of private challenges soon eliminates them, said Cedric, and even their evil is an open and clean thing greed or lawlessness or something like that. It isn't the bribery and conspiracy and betrayal of your rotten politicians. And most of us live by our code. It wouldn't occur to a true Scothani to do a dishonorable thing, to break an oath or desert a comrade or lie on his word of honor. Our women aren't running loose, making eyes at every man they come across. They're kept properly at home till time for marriage, and then they know their place as mothers and house guiders. Our boys are raised to respect the gods and the king, to fight and to speak truth. Death is a little thing, Flandry. It comes to everyone in his time, and he cannot stay it, but honor lives forever. We don't corrupt ourselves. We keep honor at home and root out disgrace with death and torture. We live our code, and that is really why we will win. Battleships help, thought Flandry, and then, looking into the cold, bright eyes, he's a fanatic, but a hell of a smart one, and that kind makes the most dangerous enemy. Aloud, he asked humbly, Isn't any stratagem a lie, sir? your own disguised travels within the empire? Naturally, certain maneuvers are necessary, said the prince stiffly. Nor does it matter what one does with regard to alien races, especially when they have as little honor as terrestrials. The good old race superiority complex, too. Oh, well. I tell you this, said Cedric earnestly, in the hope that you may think it over and see our cause is just and be with us. We will need many foreigners, especially humans, for liaison and intelligence and other services. You may still accomplish something in a hitherto wasted life. I'll think about it, sir, said Flandry. Then go. Flandry got. The ship was a good three weeks en route to Scotha. It took Flandry about two of them, to acquire an excellent working knowledge of the language. But he preferred to simulate difficulty and complained that he got lost when talk was too rapid. It was surprising 
how much odd information you picked up when you were thought not to understand what was being said. Not anything of great military significance, of course, but general background, stray bits of personal history, attitudes, and beliefs. It all went into the neat filing system, which was Flandry's memory, to be correlated with whatever else he knew or learned into an astonishingly complete picture. The Scathani themselves were quite friendly, eager to hear about the fabulous imperial civilization and to brag of their own wonderful past and future exploits. Since there was obviously nothing he could do, Flandry was under the loosest guard and had virtually the freedom of the ship. He slept and messed with the warriors, swapped body songs and dirty jokes, joined their rough-and-tumble wrestling matches to win surprised respect for his skill, and even became the close friend and confidant of some of the younger males. The race was addicted to gambling. Flandry learned their games, taught them some of the empires, and before the trip's end had won back his stolen finery plus several other outfits and a pleasantly jingling purse. It was, well, he almost hated to take his winnings from these overgrown babies. It just never occurred to them that dice and cards could be made to do tricks. The picture grew. The barbarian tribes of Scotha were firmly united under the leadership of the Frithian kings, had been for several generations. Theoretically, it was an absolute monarchy, though actually all classes, except the slaves, were free. They had conquered at least a hundred systems outright, contenting themselves with exacting tribute and levies from most of them, and dominated all others within reach. Under Penda's leadership, a dozen similar, smaller barbarian states had already formed a coalition with the avowed purpose of invading the empire, capturing Terra, destroying the imperial military forces, and making themselves masters. Few of them thought beyond the plunder to be had, though apparently some of them, like Surtic, dreamed of maintaining and extending the imperial domain under their own rule. They had a formidable fleet. Flandry couldn't find out its exact size, and its organization and technology seemed far superior to that of most barbarian forces. They had a great industry, mostly slave-manned, with the Scothan overlords supervising. They had shrewd leaders who would wait till one of the empire's recurring political crises had reduced its fighting strength and who were extremely well informed about their enemy. It looked bad, especially since they couldn't wait too long. Despite the unequaled prosperity created by industry, tribute, and piracy, all Skoda was straining at the leash, nobles and warriors in the whole coalition foaming to be at the empire's throat. A whole galactic sector had been seized by the same savage dream. When they came roaring in, well, you never could tell. The Empire's fighting strength was undoubtedly greater, but could it be mobilized in time? Wouldn't Penda get gleeful help from two or three rival Imperia? 
couldn't a gang of utterly fearless fanatics plow through the mass of self-seeking officers and indifferent mercenaries that made up most of the imperial power today? Might not the long night really be at hand? End of section 2. Recording by Paul Harvey.